I requested that last song. I can't believe that some of you didn't know that. They didn't graduate from the Travis Watson School of Singing, did they, Paula? <laughs> I don't have anything on the screen, so you'll have to look at me. First of the week, I thought, I'm not going to worry about the screen. I'm 52 years old, and I'm not as young as Benjamin, and I'm not as computer savvy as he is. <clears throat> then I thought, oh, that's not going to work. The most computer savvy person probably in this congregation is my parents' age. And if he can do it, I ought to be able to do it. I graduated from the College of Pharmacy with honors. I graduated, and it was an honor to walk out and leave it. <laughs> So I thought I'll, I'll do this. I, I thought, I know that there's a setting that you can do this and it'll go over the air like the one in the classroom that Lester so patiently deals with me with. So I asked Lester, he said, no, no, that's not the way it works in there. You'll have to ask Benjamin. I said, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to be nervous enough that I don't need to have to worry about this. So... Our scripture today is found in first in Second Corinthians chapter five. So you'll have to use the old fashioned method of, of, of looking it up in the Bible. But before I get into the message, I, I want to say my family and I have been attending here since the first of April. And I want to thank you for making us feel very welcome and very accepted. I knew a lot of you here, and I'd heard of some of you. <laughs> Becky, you laughed. Like <clears throat> but we've gotten to know a lot of you better, and I, 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 we love it. We just love it. And if you were, if this congregation was mentioned in Revelation like some of those, you're, the Lord knows your works. He knows your deeds and your reputation is well known and you live, you have proven that beyond your reputation with us. And we, we, uh, we love it here. And I appreciate the Benjamin and the elders allowing me to speak today. If you are a visitor and you are considering Mineral Springs to be your church home, come back next Sunday because... We have the best preacher in southwest Arkansas, and probably that boundary could be increased. Now, I'm good, <laughs> but he's even better. So when you hear me today, you'll want to come back because he's better. He really is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live 
should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were calling, I'm sorry, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Then skipping down to verse 3 of chapter 6, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Love is a great motivator. A lot of times love can't even be explained. Love is expressed in words, it's expressed in actions. But Christ's love was expressed in his actions, and it can't really be explained. His love was seen throughout his ministry and how he loved people and cared for them. It did things for them. But his love was exemplified the greatest when he died on the cross. You see, when Peter preached that first sermon on the day of Pentecost, and Scripture tells us that in Acts 2 that they were cut to the heart or they were pricked in their hearts, it was the fact that Christ's love was shown on the cross and the, and their guilt over what they had done. But I believe Christ's love and Peter's expression and his explanation of Christ's love cut their hearts. It motivated them to ask what they needed to do. So today I want us throughout this lesson to ask ourselves, does Christ's love compel us? Now, Some versions say constrain. What do we mean by that? Well, when you think of constrain, it sort of goes like restrain. It means to keep something, to hold it in, to hem it in, to be held back. But to be compelled means to go forward and do something. Well, it's both. Christ's love... Works, and I hope, Johnny, I don't fall from down here. Christ's love works like the monorail at Disney World. A railroad track is narrow. Christianity can be is narrow, and it should be. 
A train can only go where the track leads. You can't decide to turn right just anywhere or left. It has to be where the track leads you. But a train has to have an, out, uh, an outside source of power to, to move it. Yeah, it can't, it can't stray from the path, but it has to have something to make it move, such as steam or some other fuel, diesel fuel, whatever. But the monorail at Disney World, the track provides not only the path, but the power, because it has electricity along the path that moves it along. So to be compelled by Christ's love takes in the, the, the path as well as the power to move us in the right direction. So it's not just keeps us from doing the wrong things, it motivates us and guides us and empowers us to do the right things. Now there are four points that I want to make today that Christ's love compels us to do. And Paul brings these out in this particular passage. The first one is to believe, Christ's love compels us to believe that he died. And he died for us. And therefore, we died. We died to sin. We died to our old ways of life. We died when we repented. We made that change to turn from that old way and then to be buried in baptism to bury that dead person. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. Very familiar, I'm sure, to most of you. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised, was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So Christ's love compels us to know that we have died to sin and we have started a new life. The second thing that Christ's love compels us to, to know, Paul says, is that we no longer live for ourselves. Christianity is not a selfish life. Christ was the best example of being selfless. And Christian means to be like Christ. So Christianity is a selfless life. We, do not, we no longer live for ourselves. We, when we live for ourselves, we seek our own pleasure. We seek to 
promote our own gain. We promote our own reputation. We put our rights ahead of the rights of others. We advance our own agendas. We even turn blind eyes and deaf ears to the needs of others. We use our wealth and our time strictly for ourselves. But Christ's love compels us to not do that, that we no longer live for ourselves. Wednesday night in our our men's auditorium class, we talked about, and and Brother Johnny brought out, he was raised, and, and a lot of us were, to... You know, worry about ourselves, our own salvation, not to be evangelistic. But we no longer live for ourselves, and that carries out with our with the message of the cross. We shouldn't just be worried about our own salvation. We should be worried about the salvation of others. And and this comes under that heading of the love of Christ should compel us to be concerned about the needs, the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs of everyone that we come in contact with. And that goes right along with point number three. We no longer regard people from a worldly view. We no longer look at people through the world's eyes. We look at people like Christ would look at them. This takes in a lot of different areas of our lives and and I, I would not even begin to try to cover all of those. It's good to have a clock at the back. That way I know where I am. I preached at Delight a few months back. Not only did they have a clock at the back, they had one at the front. And that, that meant that they knew how long I'd gone. That's really bad. So I'm not even going to try to cover all the points I could cover on looking at people no longer through the world's view. But I'm going to cover a few of them. We don't regard people by race, social standing, wealth, beauty, athletic ability. That's the way the world looks at people. And we can be guilty of that. Now this first point hits me as hard as any of these. We all deal with people that are hard to deal with. We deal with people in our jobs, in our families, in the church, who get on our nerves. I mean, get on our nerves, just the mention of their name and or when they pull up in front of the drugstore, you think, oh. <laughs> but that's the worldly view. The godly view is that person has a soul that will either go to heaven or hell, and something I do or say might make a difference. That's bad when I sit at my bar, and when I say bar, I mean a bar that you eat at. And I, my morning coffee, and I study the Bible, and I do a lot of praying, and I pray, Lord, help me be with 
touch somebody today and the first person that calls is one of those people that I just mentioned that just drives you up the wall. So when you pray for that, it's going to happen. But we don't look at them like that. We look at them through God the way God would want us to look at them. Is that easy to do? Mm-mm. But the love of Christ should compel us to do that. The love of Christ should compel us to do that. The worldly view of the church. The world sometimes views the church as an organization, a club that meets because we like each other and, and we love to eat. You know, your reputation, I didn't hear that about Mineral Springs, but you live up to that. We, we eat just every few minutes. But it's an organization that's, that helps people in need. I mean, if you're on the main drag of, of, of the highway the, the, and you have somebody in the office, you, you know needy people will find you. And that's good. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. God, the Bible tells us we need to look after the physical needs of others. And I'm not knocking uh, the great giveaway. I think it's wonderful. I'm, I'm 110% for it, so don't take it that way. But you know, there are other organizations that do that. The Lions Club, any civic club, the Red Cross, Salvation Army. They, they can take care of physical needs. Not that the church shouldn't, but there's more to it than that. But that's, that's sort of the worldview of the church sometimes. But the, the church is not an organization. It's an organism. It's, it's the bride of Christ. It's who Christ died for. It's who Christ is coming back for. It's an organism. And it is set up by God to meet the physical needs for people, but more than that, the spiritual needs, to save the lost and keep them saved and help us all grow together as we go to that heavenly home. And it's made up of people who love each other because Christ loved us and who overlook other people's faults. And I tell you, this congregation is good at that. You're good at loving people and you're good at overlooking people's faults. That's good. The worldly view of elders and deacons, and this this fits other congregations maybe more than this one or others like this one, but it does, it can kind of creep in sometimes. The world, and sometimes the church views elders and deacons and, and ministers kind of like government, the three branches of government, like the preacher is the executive branch and the elders are the senate and the Deacons are the House of Representatives, and you, they are just there to do what you elected them to do, to whatever I tell you to do, whatever my wishes are. I left off one branch, the judicial branch, and sometimes church members think that's them. They're, they're set up to judge other people and all that, but we won't go there. That's a whole other subject in itself. But elders and deacons, and the, 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 the leadership of the church is not set up that way. Elders are put in place to be the spiritual leaders of the church 
and deacons are set up to be the meet the help meet the physical needs of the church, and the preacher is hired or, or set aside to present the gospel and to be a, a shepherd, help shepherd the congregation. It's not like the world sometimes views the church. And all of these leaders are accountable to God. The next area that sometimes we take a worldly view that we shouldn't is marriage. Now, I will never proclaim to be a marriage expert or a marriage counselor. I've had three hours of general psychology and 30 years of marriage, so I know a little bit. But the worldly view of marriage sometimes is if it doesn't, you know, I'll get married. If it doesn't work, so what? Sometimes that creeps into the church. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and preach on divorce. Because it's like Benjamin said last week about another subject. Preaching on that, all that does is make the ones that hadn't gotten a divorce feel better about themselves and the ones that did have had a divorce feel worse about themselves. And that's not what I'm talking about. But I do think that we need to take a godly look at marriage. And none of us can help what we did yesterday. We can't help what we just did five minutes ago. We have to start right now and go forward. And God's grace is big enough to forgive anything that we do as long as we have repented and we have tried to turn and do better in the future. So let's start right now with this marriage idea. Now, there is, in Matthew, Jesus said one man, one woman. So we're, we, we know that. So we're not going to even get into the gay marriage thing. But it certainly goes against what I read in the Bible. Now, we do need, if we are not married, to pick people based on spiritual qualifications, not just physical. And what I'm going to say doesn't necessarily guarantee that the marriage will work. But we all know examples of people that the marriage didn't work, and one of them always wants to blame the other one. I've heard people sit back and say, I'm not the one that left. So it's that other one's fault. I'm not the one that left. Well, no, you might not have been the one that left. But did you make his life or her life so bad that it made them want to leave? How many other biblical principles did you break in the marriage to cause that. I'm not the one that was unfaithful. He was the one that was unfaithful, or she was the one that was unfaithful. Well, how many scriptural things did you break that caused that person maybe to be unfaithful? We don't think about that sometimes in our legalistic... And Benjamin would say this, Church of Christ view of divorce. But we need to. So what I'm going to recommend 
to you if you are married or if you're considering marriage to be the kind of spouse number one that God would approve of but number two that most likely your spouse wouldn't want to leave or wouldn't want to be unfaithful. You know, we forget that sometimes. We don't want to take the blame ourselves. We want to always blame the other person. Now, that's not a guarantee that it will work because we all have seen marriages where one particular person did everything that he or she could to make it work and it just wasn't, the other one was not willing. God knows your circumstances. And for some, that's good. Others, it might not be too good. But the truth is, He knows. And you don't have to answer to me or to elders or to Benjamin. Or you have to answer to Him. Now, the godly view of marriage is you be a godly spouse and you will probably have a successful marriage. There's no guarantee. But we need to take a godly view of marriage. And the last thing in that particular thing, we need to take a godly view of our jobs. We need to take a godly view of our jobs. If you look at Colossians 3, chapter 22, verse 22... Slaves, obey your earthly masters and do it not only when their eyes on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. If we do our jobs to the best of our ability, it brings honor to God. Now, we've got some coaches in here. I'm going to pick on the coaches a minute. I have a son that's a coach. I I don't give him a lot of advice, believe it or not. His mother does. (laughs) And his grandmother. But I told him, I said, now, Neil, you are hired to coach football. And your job will, will probably be determined by your record. But if you're assigned to teach a classroom course, that's part of your job. And if you slack off on that, that goes against what that scripture teaches right there. Now, that's picking on the coaches. We all have things in our jobs that we don't really like to do. I have a lot. I won't start naming them. Dealing with optometrists, that's bad. But anyway, whatever's in my job description, I need to do it. I need to do it to the best of my ability. And not just to, it says not just to brown nose the boss, but to bring honor to the Lord. All right. Point you've been looking for, the last one. Begins at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The love of Christ compels us to be ambassadors. An ambassador is a representative in a foreign country. We are in a foreign country in this world, but God has made us his representative. We are his ambassadors. We are his ambassadors in our job, in our marriage, and anywhere else that we come in contact with people. You see... The average sinner is not going to be walking on the road to Damascus and be struck blind by God and told, you need to turn your life around. No, that's your, that, he's given that job to you and me. He, it says, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are the mouthpiece. We are to tell the message. And the message is that God is reconciling us to himself through Christ. That is the message that we have to teach. We have to live it and we have to teach it. And the love of Christ is what should compel us to do that. And then if you skip over to chapter 6 and verse Three, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. You see, if you slack at your job, you could be a stumbling block. My grandmother always told me, don't ever do or say anything that you couldn't turn right around and put your arm around somebody and say, go to church with me Sunday. I, told, I tell that real often. And I showed out one day really bad at the pharmacy. <laughs> bad. And one of my little clerks who was in college at the time and graduated from high school with my son, did you invite him to church? <laughs> it was bad. And, I, you know, I, I'm not really proud of that. But we should not be a stumbling block. And we should not be a stumbling block in our marriage. And you can be. You can be a stumbling block in your marriage. So, he compels us to be his ambassadors. We're the only Jesus a lot of people will ever see. So, ask yourself, is Christ's love compelling me? Am I being compelled by his love? Am I compelled to love him back? And in loving him, am I doing what I can to reach others? I better not read and walk. Are we compelled to to love Christ? First John chapter five, verses three and four says, This is love for God. To obey his commands. 
And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. We, we preached a lot down here at Memorial Springs on God's grace, and I'm, I'm not against that. But we cannot ever take away how important obedience is. This passage tells me that it, it's equivalent to our love for God. This is love for God to obey His commands. Now, his commands are not burdensome. A lot of people would question that. They're, we all can agree that sometimes being a Christian is very difficult. You know the difference? May I suggest to you how to make these commands less burdensome? Let the love of Christ compel you. Let that be your motivation. Not just checking off a list of things that we have to do and make it a physical checklist. That's when it's burdensome. That's when it's burdensome. But when we let Christ's love compel us because of what he did on the cross for us and how good he is to it, all those songs we sang today go right along with what we're talking about. And I just picked one. If you let Christ's love compel you, his commands will not be burdensome. You'll want to do it. Just like wanting to do something for your little grandchild. Oh, yeah, I'm worn out after I keep one of them, or if I keep both of them, I'm, I'm really worn out. It's not burdensome because I love it. Same way with Christ. If we let his love compel us, his commands are not burdensome. If you need to make a decision today, come forward. If you need prayers of the congregation, come forward. I'm sure one of the elders or all the elders would be happy to pray with you. Whatever your decision needs to be today, do so as we stand in.